The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. You can support the show by clicking on the donate button on the website or in the show notes. This is Ibari X, and this is The Candid Frame. When you are a photographer, whether you're working commercially or in the world of fine art, there is a certain amount of self-promotion that's involved. And though some people find it difficult to sell themselves, the reality often is that until you're able to do it for yourself, there will likely be little interest in someone else doing it for you. Though some believe the work should stand for itself, such moments don't often happen spontaneously or in a vacuum. Bob Fisher has been an artist for over 50 years, and by some people's definition, he has been described as a shameless self-promoter. That side of him can be seen in the 1999 documentary film Original Stick, which tells the story of his three-month collaboration with several Australian artists and galleries, which didn't turn out as many people expected. The film is a fascinating exploration of issues of fame, business in the fine art world, and what one person can create through sheer force of will and maybe some questionable ethics. Bob Fisher's latest book is Vignettes, a collection of his street photography which explores another side of his artistic process. And the conversation provides some fascinating observations of what drives someone to create art and hopefully leave behind a legacy. So, Bob, let's let's start off with, you know, you um, you have been an artist for a while now, and I think photography may have come a little later. Right. Tell, tell us a little bit about when you started picking up photography, and then we can go back into your, your history as an, as an artist. Okay. Cause, well, it's all related to photography, actually. The bottom line of even my painting was uh, photography, but as far as picking up photography itself, it was in um, 1997. I had always used photographers to help me photograph models for my paintings. I was always afraid to – with a camera, I never knew when to click the shutter. So, I would wait and wait and wait, and I never got it right. And then uh, my partner and I took a trip to the Amazon, and we came back. They were offering – a basic photo class at College of the Desert in Palm Springs for $35. And I thought, how can I screw up for 35 bucks? So mm. I registered for the class and this was with film. I had a Canon Rebel and I remember being in, you know, I had always wa- worked um, by myself in my studio. So to be in the washroom, the dark room with 20 people was kind of overwhelming for me. But I remember standing in there with 20 people and they're all watching their prints roll around in the wash tray. People who only know digital wouldn't understand this, but they're watching the photos go around in a circle and they'd have pictures of their babies and of palm trees and whatever. And then there'd be a nude picture of my wife who weighed 500 pounds traveling around in the same water. And they said, wow, what what the hell is that? And I realized that in order to do photography, you have to have a story. And and when you're 20, you don't have much of a story. Anyway, that was how I got started with photography. And with your your latest book, Vignettes, is a collection of street photography. So when did when you did you start exploring 
life on on the street is part of your your work as a photographer rather than using it as sort of a launching point for your artwork like i said in 1997 when i after i learned how to use my camera to use a camera ed and i went my partner went back down to the amazon again and we would travel all over the world and i would bring my camera with me and i would shoot things the stories that I told in my paintings are the same stories I saw in my photography. I tell in my photography, you know, and I would see things on the street and I would shoot them. It wasn't really until like about 2008 that I really decided to do street, photo- you know, to give that, do exclusively street photography. Although I still did work in the studio. And over the last two years, it's been strictly street. I don't work in my studio at all. As I said in the book, it's um, it was too hard to be clever in the studio, you know, with models telling them to look this way and look that way and look up and look down. And I was really getting bored with that. Whereas in the street, it's all right there. You don't have to do anything. You just have to be awake. Yeah. You, you got started as, as an artist uh, during your, your, your marriage. Right. Uh, your, your wife was an artist. And uh, tell us the story in terms of how you ended up picking, picking, up, uh, picking up the brush. Well, I was a real uh, male chauvinist pig, as we called our breed in the 80s. And uh, my wife was what I consider to be a rather mediocre artist. And it was three in the morning and I couldn't sleep. And I got up and there was this horrible painting she had done of the highlights of Chicago. And arrogantly, I picked up a paintbrush and took some of her paints and did an abstract painting over it. It looked pretty good to me. And then I woke her up at like three o'clock in the morning and I said, look what I did. And she, instead of saying, you jerk, you just covered up my painting or leave me alone. I want to go back to bed. She came out and looked at it and told me why it worked as a piece of art, that she really liked it. And it was, and that I had some talent because as I I had told you before, I was in school to become a psychotherapist and I was getting my degree in psychology and I love the idea that I could make art because I had never done anything like that before. I had no artistic ability whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You know, being an artist is is a challenge, you know, in a variety of different ways, but especially in terms of trying to, you know, make out uh, make a living. Oh, yeah. Especially if you already have sort of a path that's going to lead to something that's quote unquote reasonable in employment, right? As opposed to the up and down of of, of being an artist. What was it that appealed to you so much that you felt like, well, I'm going to leave this other sort of track that I thought that I was going to go to, and I'm going to try to make some effort to find some modicum of success as an artist. You know, I hear people on here all the time, all the time saying, well, it's a really good question. <laughs> and that is a really good question. You know, when I was sitting in my psychology class and studying about abnormal psychology in the back of my mind, I really could never see myself hanging out a shingle, Bob Fisher therapist. And the idea of going to graduate school and all of that stuff just seemed overwhelming to me. And when I realized that I could make art, I decided, well, I'm going to finish my degree because that's what I should do. But I, it just seemed to make so much more sense to me to make art. And I had the support of my wife and you know, a lot of things came into play. And then I wound up having a manager for my painting. He was a thief, but he taught me a lot of stuff. And one of them, he would pay, he paid for my apartment and all of that stuff. And all I had to do was run uh, this gallery in Old Town. And I said, well, what do I have to do? He said, sell your art. 
And that was all he told me. And I said, well, how do I do that? He said, any way you can. That was an incredible challenge, right? Because I was unlimited into in what I could do to sell my art, which is why I created those huge multimedia events. And I was um, I learned how to do publicity by myself. And let's face it, the people write about you in the uh, magazine because you're interesting. So if you do weird things, you can always get in the newspaper. And But I never seemed to get the type of write-ups that I wanted. I was never in Art News or Art in America or any of that stuff. I was in Penthouse Magazine and People Magazine and, you know, like pop culture things. And back in the 80s, this is before reality shows of who's the best artist and, you know, they get a prize of an article in a magazine. I was really denigrated for that, for doing publicity and promoting myself. And artists didn't do that in the in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did do everything that I could to sell my art. You know, I did art fairs. Um, I produced uh, some prints. I have one print in the Smithsonian. So, but, you know, of course, none of that means that the work is going to sell any faster. It's just more shtick. It's, you know, that's an interesting part of your your story. Because when I think about artists, one of the things that they, a lot of them aren't good at is self-promotion. You know, they, they love producing their work, but, you know, you ask them to talk about it or to, or to sell it or, or more importantly, to sell themselves. Mm-hmm. And they they have, a, you know, difficulty doing that. And, you know, you've been described as a shameless, quote unquote, self-promoter. And you're, <laughs> you've been really good at that. And, and, I, and I think that people have a tendency to devalue people's work based on one's ability to be able to do that. They question whether or not, you know, if the work is really good, that you wouldn't have to do that. And I think that as a successful artist, sometimes you have to have sort of a modicum of, of both. You have to have the work, but you also have to have the ability to be able to go out there and sell yourself. Yeah. And that's, you know, and it's really hard and it's really painful because I, st- I still have not figured out how to become famous. That was always my goal to become famous. Of course, when people look at my the stuff that I've done and everything, they they tell me, wow, you are really famous. But to me, it's like, you know, I'm still not where I want to be. And getting rejections and um, all of that stuff, it's really painful for me, even today. So, but I needed to make art and I had a, I had a family and I had to pay the rent uh, after I left uh, the pavilion, which was the gallery that I was operating out of. And I did everything that I could to sell my art. When we moved to California, we didn't have a car, okay? I moved in, uh, I think, 1991, and I had like 150 paintings stacked up in my living room. And they were signed by fame. I had, when I would do portraits of people, I would get them to sign them and whatever. And I just decided I'm going to sell these paintings for whatever I can to buy a car. And I did. I sold paintings for $50 and some paintings I sold. Somebody had more money. If I thought they had more money, I'd sell it to them for $300. And it didn't matter what the painting was. I needed the money. So it was just an object to sell. You know, so many artists are so, they they worship their art. You know, for me, it was just that they were things I needed to get rid of. And I made like 17 grand and I bought a Nissan and we traveled to California. That's what I needed. You know, so people got a good deal and I got a good deal. <laughs> you said that you wanted to be famous. What what, what, what would that mean to you? What, what does that mean? Well, here's the deal. 
And, you know, uh, this this concept has dogged me my entire career, including in the movie that uh, that was done about me, about being famous. To me, it means that I want my 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 artwork is my thinking. It's it's my quote unquote legacy, as corny as that may sound. And unless I'm famous, unless I'm accepted by the people who run the Metropolitan Museum and the Museum of Contemporary Art and the uh, you know the museum in in Holland, whose name I can't remember because I'm 66. You know, unless I'm famous according to them, so that my work is in a climate controlled environment, it'll wind up in garage sales in the or the 25 cent bin, uh, and maybe somebody will find it like John Maloof found Vivian Mayer and made her famous. But you know, I don't want to wait till I'm dead. <laughs> But if I don't become famous, then my work is just going to wind up in a garage or a basement. And somebody may find it, like Maloof did, but they still have to do the work. So that's what being famous to me is. It's not about the money. I don't really care about the money. I mean, I did what I did to had to do to sell my paintings to survive. Um, uh, and now I'm financially, I'm you know, I'm really secure because of different things but for me it's not the money it's about being famous means my artwork will be taken care of in a climate controlled environment after i die because without that then i would have not i would have lived for nothing because there's nothing to live carry on after me i know it sounds kind of morbid no no i mean i can understand that but something a lot of people say they derive their joy from being able to just, just live their lives producing their work. Uh, whether or not the their work outlives them in the long term is something that's completely out of their control. But from what I know you would like to be able to have to be able to exert some control over that. But what do you say to people who say, you know, really is should be about the pleasure of the work of creating it and making your life about making art <laughs> and then letting what happens afterwards be whatever it's going to be. You know, you're going to force me to. You're, 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 yeah, you're going to force me to sound like a jerk. Now I know it. So <laughs> I hate being put in that position. Um, I think all artists. Yeah, okay. That's that's kind of like the hallmark card idea. Yeah, I just want to make my art and the joy of making my art. But frankly, unless somebody takes care of it after you're dead, all the effort that you've put into it gets lost. If you if what you have to say is important in your work, and all artists mm-hmm. believe that, that you know their their work is important, even Thomas Kincaid wanted to be famous, and he was famous, and he killed himself because his work was so bad that you know nobody respected it. I don't believe them. I think deep down, I think it's maybe something that they maybe that they perhaps don't want to admit. You know, that all artists want recognition, not only from their peers, but the people uh, who run the institutions that exhibit those works and maintain those works. I I think artists are afraid to admit that sometimes, Mm -hmm. that maybe it makes them seem shallow or, um, you know, they're not with it. I don't know if people talk like that anymore, but it's not cool to think that way. So I I have no problem saying it, <laughs> you know, and I, I, I and I agree with you because I think it's something that most people don't say out loud. I'm glad that you you know you're you put that out there because even even when I think about my work, 
and I think about the podcast, I'm, you know, I'm conscious of the fact that I want this work to live after I'm gone. Right. Well, you know, as you just said, you put so much work and time into it that you're hoping that, you know, that there's something lasting about it, that people find value about it, you know, long after I'm able to even create the stuff. So, well, you know what, a bearing X is not, it's not really about the time and the effort that I put into it. It's in my work, whether it was my paintings or those events, which were these actually huge performance pieces or my photography, or my books, or when I painted furniture and did body painting and all of that, it's the stories that I have to tell. I'm a really, really good storyteller, and those stories will disappear unless somebody cares enough about my work to say, you know, this stuff is really good. We should, uh, we should hang it up every once in a while. You know, I don't want one of these, I don't want to be really one of these long lost artists that that get discovered maybe 20 years after they're dead. They get a one person uh, retrospective at the Metropolitan Museum and then it disappears again after a full page article in the New York Times about how wonderful this artist is after he's been dead for 20 years, you know. And I am very, I'm really fortunate because all I have to do is paint, do my art. So, so what are the stories that you like like to explore? Um, okay, well, let's see. The psychology between men and women, between parents and children, between society and and um, strange people, people on the outside, the desperation of people to be unique and to show it. Who and and who is really special and who is just. Uh, being a follower, uh, the quirkiness of travel, and the similarity between people all over the world. I mean, I know that sounds kind of hokey, but these are some of the stories, you know, that I've been telling for years and years and years in my painting, especially, you know, the uh, sexual relationships between people, whether it's gay or straight or whatever. These are all images, um, loneliness, alienation. Uh, desperation. Uh, these are some of the stories that I tell. And I told, yeah. there were the stories I told in my paintings and they're the same stories that I tell with my photography. You know, you, you mentioned earlier that you were, you were married and eventually that marriage ended. And then at some point you came out as a, as a gay man and had relationships mm-hmm. following that. And, you know, you came from a generation where that, that you know, where that it's, it's not like it is now. No, there are a lot of people that are still within the closet, but you know there was less impetus to be able to come out in public and as as a gay man and live your life like that. And I'm wondering that as a result of doing doing this, how did that help you change and develop as an artist, having that freedom to be able to be who you felt you really were? Look, I'm always grateful that I uh, was married to my wife Paula because she taught me showed me that I could be an artist without her I would have been a sh- I don't know I would have been a shrink or I'd still be working at I'd be working at Starbucks or something you know she gave me she gave me my life but underneath it all look at I've always been gay I don't know why I've years and years and years I think about why did I ask her to marry her and I don't know and then I met Ed uh, I, I met Ed because at that time, right before I met Ed, I was determined that I was going to come out, that I knew that I had to, that I couldn't live like that anymore. 
And I wanted to live a life of clarity. And clarity meaning that I know uh, not having any internal lies. Like I wasn't lying anymore. Like, you know, and then when I met Ed, it was amazing. I just, he and I just hit it off. We just fell in love with each other. It was amazing experience. And that afforded me not only somebody who really loved me, who was a man, who was wealthy. I mean, I didn't fall in love with him because of that, but that provided me the the cushion to be able to do my art without any impediments because I didn't have to work. I just was, I basically became a, a housewife photographer. You know, I we traveled all over the world and I had a huge studio in Palm Springs and uh, this is when I was doing film and then I moved over to digital and Ed loved my art and supported my art and and he was like the most secure person I had ever met. Like when I was living in Australia for those three months, putting on those events, and which is when they made that movie. And he was totally secure with me being myself, you know, which never would have happened when I was in my relationship with my wife. Because mm-hmm. women rarely are wired that way, that type of security. So coming out, uh, gave me the freedom to do my art without any impediments, without any other things that I had to handle, like paying bills, <laughs> which is a big deal. Did you feel like you were more unrestrained in terms of what you wanted to express and explore and, and say in your work as a result? No, that's never been an issue with me. And that's the stuff like that has gotten me in trouble and sent to the principal's office since I was five years old. You know, I've always said what I wanted to say. I was never afraid to paint the paintings that I wanted to paint. I'm never afraid to do the photography that I wanted to do. I just did it. That was never an issue with me about somehow coming out and then giving me the freedom to say the things that I wanted to say. I've always been, what, what do we call, people call that a ball buster when it comes to that. I mean, it was always out there. Yeah. And I'm still get sent to the principal on Facebook. You know, somebody, I, I put a picture of a cantaloupe on there and somebody complained to Facebook that it was sexual and needed to be removed. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. so I don't know if that answers your question. No, no, it does. Well, in in the film that you mentioned called Original Stick, it, it sort of documents your your time during Australia in Australia where you were collaborating with a variety of different uh, artists there mm-hmm. um, and a couple of galleries. And to be quite frank, I watched the film and it doesn't portray you in a particularly positive light. No, it makes me look um, like an asshole. <laughs> it does. So, you know, uh, tell us a little bit about, about it because I think it's – it's insightful in a variety of different ways, but why don't you tell uh, our listeners who have had the opportunity to see it yeah, uh, well, a little bit of yeah. the background in the story? Okay. Well, I went to Australia. Uh, I had been going to Australia since 1991 when I had a midlife crisis, and I fell in love with Australia, and I know many, many, many people in Melbourne, and so – I like to collaborate with other artists. I mean, I can't build furniture. I can't blow glass. I can't throw clay. I wasn't a photographer, but I can collaborate with those artists to extend the range of my painting into glass and ceramics and furniture and clothing and all of those things. 
and I knew that because Australia was such an insular country that they would never accept an American there. This was in 1997, I think. And so I knew I had to collaborate. So I had this um, an assistant, and he wanted to be a filmmaker, but he didn't really have any talent. But what he did do is he went out and he found a real filmmaker who said they wanted to make a film of my time in Australia. And you've seen the film. I called the film from the very beginning. It's I said... It doesn't matter what I say because you'll edit it any way that you want. And so mm -hmm. when people watch documentaries, they need to be aware of the fact that documentaries are just as fictional as The Revenant. You know, they're not real. They're like Spinal Tap. This guy's agenda obviously was to make me look like a con man and a thief, which was not true. And if you look at my paintings, all my artwork is kind of secondary to me. They never really, you know. I wanted a, I wanted a film that would show me making great art with classical music playing in the background and playing on PBS. That's what I wanted. I wanted a PBS special of me being clever, and they made this movie <laughs> instead. But this movie, you know, I was there when it opened at the Melbourne Film Festival, and uh, then they sent it to Sydney, and the people at the Sydney Film Festival wrote back to the director and said, this guy cannot be for real. This has got to be a mockumentary. Nobody could be like this guy. <laughs> and he said, no, no, that's really him. And um, then the film went on and won the Academy Award in Australia for Best, Academy, uh, Best Documentary. And then it went to Sundance Film Festival where they made a um, sequel to it called Shtick Happens. Look, at as much as I look like a jerk in that film – I was just talking to somebody about this the other day who wants to work for me. I said, you need to watch this film before you work for me. Everything that I said in that film, I would say again, it, as far as business and you know, artists wanting contracts and being neurotic and all of that stuff. But I wasn't a thief. You know, like the woman who's carrying, she, I painted that mirror and she said, uh, her attorney told her possession is nine tenths of the law. And she's walking out carrying her mirror with my art on it. So she was stealing my art, but, you know, people have tunnel vision. Mm -hmm. It's a great movie. It was the first movie ever shown at Sundance that was completely digital, by the way. And because oh, uh, you could see the film director working with that tiny little camera, which now they make movies on iPhones. So. As much as the film makes me look bad, it's a great piece of art. And so I promote it because I think great art should be promoted. And it's a great, it's a great film. And it predated through the gift shop. You know, it, it's won, it won awards all over. And it was my ego. You know, the guy wouldn't make the film unless I gave him complete control. So I didn't have control over the film. It, but I was watching it, and, and, and like like other people, I was like, I was sort of jaw dropping at what I was seeing because it was so raw. Um, <laughs> you know, but one of the sort of the takeaways that I saw about that is that the in in the art world, it is so much about being able to sell yourself as a personality, right? You know, and when you're talking to these galleries, you know, they all had sort of this. Uh, assumption of, about who you were and all your work based on what you sort of pitched to them, uh, the other the other artists there as well, and I realize how how that is so much about the art world and how so many people who want to enter the fine art world think that it's strictly about the work, 
And sometimes you have people there like you who have this force of personality that makes stuff happen. And I think a lot of a lot of people who aspire to be artists lack that. Mm-hmm. And it's it's sort of really interesting to see someone who has that and how they just through the sheer well, I'm, force I'm of a, their personality create things. Yeah, well, I'm a good schmoozmeister. You know, I said in the film that it's all about schmoozing, shtick, and schlepping. Yeah, you know? and that's true. You know, you have to sh- schmoozing is you have to tell people who you are. And this that thing about the naked tap dancing zebra women, you know, it has there's certain buttons you can push to get people's interest. But when I was dealing with the artist one on one to get them to work with me, I would just tell them who I was and I would connect with them. And if their first question out of their mouth to me was, well, how do I get paid? Then I would tell them I can't work with you because I needed artists who were really enwrapped in creating art to which the payment would be secondary. Not that I wasn't going to pay them, but mm-hmm. it, it, it told me where they were coming from. If, you know, like I said, if they, if they would say to me, well, well, after I do my whole spiel, if the first thing they say is, well, how do I get paid? I'd say, well, listen, I got to go because I knew I couldn't work with them because it would be the overriding principle in anything that they ever did with me. And you have to be able to sell yourself. Look at why are movie stars like, uh, you know, Catherine Hepburn and Betty Davis and John Wayne and all these people is still famous. It, it, the acting is only a part of it. The rest of it is a shtick. You know, they have, it's their personalities and who they knew and how they did it. And so you're right, Barrynix. You know, the talent is only a very small part of it. But, but the asking asking about how am I going to get paid it has to become a consideration at some point. Oh, yeah, I mean, of course. I count the number of times where people want me to collaborate and get involved with something, and it's like there's no pay involved. And at some point, it's like, you know, something I only have so many hours in the day, and I can't do all this stuff for free all the time. Yeah, I get it. So at some point, you know, you have to make a reasonable expectation. Of uh, yeah, of course, I was going to pay them. I, oh, no, what I told them was, and look, at I have done things in my career on numerous, numerous, numerous occasions for no money. I do it on the come, meaning, you know, I'm going to do it and I get exposure. You know, that whole shtick of restaurants get art for free by telling the poor sucker artist, I'll give you exposure. You know, artists are desperate for exposure. So as far as working with these artists, the deal was that I was doing all the work to create this environment inviting, uh, you know, asking all of these collectors to come and everything. And this work would sell when the work would sell, we would both get paid because I wasn't getting paid either. You, you, mm-hmm. you understand what I was, what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. I wasn't telling them. Yeah, sure. You have things that you have to do. You have to, you only have so many hours, but sometimes if you want to get someplace, you have to be willing to take a risk. You have to be willing to take a chance that maybe you won't get paid for quite a while. You know, and if you're if you go into something where you're come from a point of desperation, then it's hard to get any place. Well, one of the things you said said in the film it was about this that sometimes your work doesn't sell, and don't tell anyone, right. which is rather rather funny. <laughs> but you know, the film was made a while ago. But have you found things during the, during the intervening years that it's made made you? better at being able to actually move work no i'm just i'm worse now 
<laughs> First of all, you know that whole thing that it doesn't matter what they say as long as they spell your name right? You know, number right. one, mm-hmm. that's kind of bullshit. Uh, two, did it uh, – having two films around the world with me in it showing my art even in the background help me sell anything? Not a thing. But, you know, that all relates back to what you asked me about what is success to me. Like when I – in the film, I say, well, I, I know this opening is a success – just the way I knew it would be. For me, the success was people coming and expressing how much they love the work and all of that. That was a success to me. The number of people that showed up and the number of people who said amazing things about what I worked so hard to create. And, you know, the gallery owner who said, I, I know that Bob is already complaining that I didn't sell anything. Well, frankly, that was his job. That's why you have a gallery director. They're supposed to sell. He didn't sell, and he blamed it back on me. So now I'm in a position where I don't care if I sell my work, really. It's not important to me. It's, you know, and uh, as far as my photos, that's what I love about having this book thing is that people can buy my art now for really very reasonable amount of money, and it gets my work out to a much wider audience. Yeah, I was going to say that having a book is is really a way of being able to sort of control your legacy as opposed to just trying to sell work and having it uh, in some sort of collection. Having a book is uh, is a means by which you're able to express not only your work as it stands today, but be able to say that 10, 15, 30 years from now that mm-hmm. this is what Bob did. So um, it, are, do you see it? Uh, is that the way you were approaching it, or, or were there other considerations? You mean with the book? Well, yeah. uh-huh. I decided, you know, I was working on my memoirs, and then I thought, you know, I have all of this really amazing street work. I should really make a book. And I put this book together, and I, I look at it, you know, it's uh, to me, it's not about making any money on this book. You know, I'm I'm thrilled when people that I don't even know have been buying the book and and writing you know, these amazing five-star reviews about my artwork and stuff like that. To me, it doesn't matter how much money I make. If the book makes a lot of money or no money, it's about getting my work out there. Look at I've been working at this for almost 50 years. That in itself is frightening. I looked at the other day. I've been making art for almost 50 years, and I think I'm finally getting close to getting a little bit more recognition for what I do because I – I think I'm good at what I do, and all the reviews that I've been getting have been extraordinary. So I don't know if that answers your question. Do you do you find that putting together the book was an opportunity for self discovery? That as you were looking at all this work and trying to decide what went into there, that you started making some discoveries as in terms of not only what you were doing, but how what sort of progress or change yeah. may have happened well, between yes. 2011 and 15? Yeah, and that's an extraordinarily great question. <laughs> <laughs> it's really true. You do come up with good questions. Yeah, in, in the process that I was doing the street work, like say starting in 2008, uh, there's a, in the essay that I wrote in the book – it wasn't until like two years ago when I was sitting on the metro in Paris that I, it hit me, you know, those aha moments when the light bulb goes on. I finally figured out like what street photography is. And I write about this in the essay where I said uh, I remember going to a Gary Winograd show at uh, San Francisco Museum 
And I looked at this stuff and I go, what is this shit? What is the big deal about this? It's like nothing. These are boring photos except for the one with the couple and the monkey in the car. I said, okay, that's, that's, I like that one, you know, and then being on the Metro and there's a photo in the book of, um, it was actually the best photo that I took of that whole trip. It was Gary Winograd. I think Gary Winograd was having a big show in Paris. Actually, so now that I think of it, that's pretty interesting. And through the window of the Metro, there was one of that famous picture that he took of the uh, the black people at a Kennedy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know that famous picture of his? And yeah, it, all you well, can see yeah. were these uh, black women – through the window of the metro, right? And sitting right across from me, there were two black guys, one who was really disinterested and really like from like African dark. And the other guy looked like very light skin. But it was like mm-hmm. suddenly all these black people just in front of me, you know, that was coming through the window and sitting there. And I thought, wow, that is really an extraordinary image. And that was when I realized that street photography it's not about, you know, the reflections of the Eiffel Tower and a puddle of water or a beautiful picture of the bridge or, you know, lone figures walking down the street or some of the stuff that's out there now, which is so overwhelmingly mediocre. It's about real subtle things. And it, that was an aha moment for me was to really understand what street photography really is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that... You can look at which ostensibly says nothing, and then the more you look at it, you realize the subtleties that are in the picture, in the the image, and the juxtaposition of things, and subtle clues that are in you know in different parts of the photograph. And street photography is a really complex thing. It's uh, and it's, sure you can take a great street photo with an iPhone. You still have to have an eye. You still have to see it. And thank you for sending me the book. I love the picture on the cover, by the way. Well, that, you know, that is a direct, that photo would have never happened without having that moment where I realized like what street photography was. And, you know, I rail on, I rail on and on and on about that, like on Facebook, you know, like, there's so much bad street photography uh, and everybody wants to be like Vivian Mayer and stuff like that. And, and um, mm-hmm. this photo, you know, when I took it, I didn't even see all that other stuff. I just saw the old guy on the walker. Yeah. But it's it's certainly different work than I was doing before when I did street photography. Sometimes I get really tired of people like catching me taking their picture. You know, I get really tired of that. I was on a train in, uh, in Sydney and I was photographing these three women who would not shut up for like an hour. I wanted to go run over and slit their throats. And so this one woman is – she's staring at me and she said, are we bothering you? And I should have said, yeah, you. I wish you would shut the hell up. And she said, I saw – I said, I didn't take your picture. She said, I saw you do that in your glasses. <laughs> I mean she was really really staring at me. She was watching me with a picture and um, working on the my iPhone. <laughs> so it's kind of exhausting. My friend, Jim, who wrote that essay there, he says he's always amazed when he looks at my work because there's all kinds of stuff like like in the, in that book, you know, that photograph of the two chicks that look like they want to beat the shit out of me in the, the very first photo called Beautiful Girls? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. 
I just noticed this. I shot that photo two years ago. Okay. I, I just noticed mm-hmm. a month ago that between them is a sign that says, tell us what you think. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I didn't even see that. You know, yeah. I, he tells me that I have like unconscious sight, you know, that I just, I see, I do see things and I shoot them right away, but there's all kinds of other stuff that wind up in the photos that either I see, but I don't recognize, or it was just lucky or mm-hmm. I don't know. He says, I think it's more than luck though with you, Bob, because you do it all the time. Yeah, that one that's called Chinese Village Nowhere China. Uh, yeah. Oh, I love that shot. That is just so every it's like there's no there's no way to wasted space in that shot. There isn't. You know, and that's what I love about street photography is that I don't have to be smart. You know, I don't come up with ideas. I'm so tired of telling people look to the right, look to the left, look up, you know, blah blah mm. blah. And uh, and it, one of the great things about this book, actually, is that it shows the consistency in human behavior because those photos are taken all over the world and people are just as funny, just as ridiculous, just as sober in China mm-hmm. as they are in San Francisco. And the, probably this – there are two photos in that book that are really special to me. One is the couple that are kissing in the doorway because when I took their – it was in Paris. I took their picture – and they caught me taking their picture and they got really startled. So I'm sure they thought I was like a private detective. And the uh, other one is the photograph of the really boring guy with the two gay guys next to him and says, I, only, I do things that you can't even dream of. Mm. Those are the guys that wind up being serial killers, the ones that look like really boring people. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I saw that photo – that to me, that's really serious. Those are the people that when they wind up on the news the next day, their neighbors say, but they were so quiet. Mm-hmm. We didn't even know he had heads in his refrigerator. Yeah. Well, when I look at some of your 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 um, some of the, your artwork that you were doing before the photography, a lot of that stuff is really bold, explosive. Mm-hmm. And you just use the word subtlety in, in with respect to your photography. Do you think that practicing subtlety made you a better artist yes i'll tell you there's a couple of really important things uh that i i really would like to go back to number one because i never went to art school i i never studied anatomy and so i started using the photos of uh harrell and avondon you know who harrell is the the yes, hollywood absolutely. photographer mm-hmm. Huh? Mm-hmm. and um i learned that if i i could only I use black and white because I could see the contrast more clearly. And I learned to really look into the black, that even if you take a black and white photograph out of the library where and you have an area that's all black, if you turn it just the right way, you can actually see the line of somebody's arm or shoulder. Cause, and I was desperate to be able to see that because I didn't know how to draw a human figure. So I actually trained myself to see in black and white and the subtlety, the subtle shades of black. And that a great black and white photo has to have black to white and everything in between, even in the darkest areas, there has to be detail. And because I started as a painter, I don't really consider myself a photographer. I consider myself an artist with a camera. So most, if you talk to photographers, they're really anal about the size of their lens and the f-stops and all of that stuff that goes with photography. If I were in a room with photographers, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't have anything to say. 
because I don't really understand all of that stuff. I, I use the camera intuitively to capture the things that I see. And I, I lecture, I, I teach workshops and, um, uh, and I lecture. And one of the things that I is really paramount to me as an artist is that I'm interested in getting a great image, not a great photograph. You know, great photographs, there's a, there's a really subtle difference between a great photograph and a great image. And because I operate and it's important for me to have a great image, it frees me up when I'm sitting in front of my computer using Photoshop to be experimental. I don't put fictitious things in there. I don't have people, you know, water skiing on the Seine, you know, or, or bears climbing up the Eiffel Tower or stuff like that. But I'm, I'm not. I'm not hampered by having to get a great photograph mm -hmm. where everything has to be in focus. You know, focus and color and all of those things are creative choices. And you have to and for me it's important for me to decide do I want it to be in focus or out of focus? Some do I want the photo to have color because I'm a colorist because I'm a painter. Uh, if you in the book, there are very there are very few colored photographs. Although I sh everything I shoot is in color, right? Because that's a digital camera. Sometimes the color is a distraction to what I want to say in the photo, and so I remove the color because black and white uh, forces you to look at the image without distraction of the color. Sometimes I want color in there because I'm really involved in the psychology of color and how to how to manipulate the viewer by having color, whether it's oversaturated or undersaturated or like that one photo in the book of the couple on the Great Wall where it's all black and white except for the woman in the pink suit. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all, it's, it's all decisions that I make to tell my story better, more clearly, uh, as are the titles, which are really important to my work. I just think that, and this is one thing that I use in my lecture all the time, and uh, is that artists who come up with Untitled or Bridge 13 or whatever are really cheating their viewer because the viewer only has the photo to look at. And, and as the artist, when I give it a title, I'm giving them a, a point of view. At least a place to start. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is to uh, recommend <laughs> another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? Well, I've thought about this for the years that I've listened to you. But I actually wrote I, – I do have the one that was probably the most influential, and that was Irving Penn. You know, he was, uh, he did work for Vogue and he did those amazing portraits. And uh, I've used his images both in my paintings as well as models for my photographs. As a matter of fact, I'm going back to doing portrait work now. And I actually bought a book, a collective book of Irving Penn's work to look at different ways of posing models. Because he was extraordinary in putting people in a corner and just his stuff was just amazing and really important to me as in my growth as an artist so that's yeah, it wonderful wonderful work and where can people go to find out more about you and your work well they can uh go to www.robertfisherphoto.com and that's f-i-s-c-h-e-r they can look at the book on amazon and they can google me and they can see what a horrible person i was in that movie <laughs> 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 
<laughs> it's a living record of me hanging in outer space of me as an asshole. It's an entertaining movie. They'll definitely be engaged by watching it. So. Well, the interesting thing is when people that I've known for a while come over, I say, oh, do you want to watch a movie about me? And they always say, oh, yeah, we really want to see that. I said, just remember, keep in your mind us having this pleasant conversation while you're watching <laughs> this movie. And they always say, I don't even know who that person is in that movie. But it was a great movie. It's original shtick. And you can actually uh, stream it from Amazon. Yeah. I'll, I'll include a, a link in, in the show notes. for people It's worth seeing. This has been a thrill for me. Oh, my. It was my pleasure to sit down and talk with you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for joining me. Please remember that you do make a big difference in our show. Take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store and make a small contribution to the show. It all goes a very long way. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.